Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today we have our guest, Mari Margill, the Associate Director for the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund. And this is a fascinating organization. Mari's going to tell us a lot about this. She has an interesting background. She has a master's degree in public policy and urban planning. And she has previous experience as Director of Corporate Transformation for Corporate Ethics International. Now, the combination of these two things has led her to some really inspirational work that we're going to talk about around recognizing the rights of nature. Mari, welcome to the show. Thank you, Cheryl. It's great to have you here. So let's start by talking a little bit about where you are today and um, kind of what you're focus is for the afternoon. <laughs> I'm in Spokane, Washington today. We ha- are working with a coalition of groups and people across this city. Spokane is um, in the eastern part of Washington State, about 200,000 yeah. people, and over the past two years, there has been a growing number of folks who said that it, things don't seem to be working the way that they need to in the city. For example, um, Spokane's River, um, which is really, really beautiful, runs right through the city, but it's very polluted. It was named one of the top ten most polluted rivers, um, I think back in 2005 by the group American Rivers. Skilled labor is running out of the city. Um, Spokane is one of the poorest places in the state of Washington. Uh, median income is very low about 20,000 or more folks in the city don't have access to health care. There's a number of problems that people are facing. And so folks got together starting about two years ago to talk about what what, what it might look like to do things differently um, and together put together a vision um, for what they want the city to look like. And they transformed that vision into a community bill of rights, community bill of rights, which they circulated um, by petition to put on the ballot for this November 3rd um, as a ballot measure um, that was created by and for the people. And it's really a fascinating thing that's happening here in Spokane. And so we're assisting um, folks as they move through this campaign. Um, and we're really in the last part of it because um, it's been going on for several years now. Um, but it includes things like um, people have um, a right to access Healthcare people who need it have the right to access it because so many of us without healthcare rely on ERs right now, which raise premiums for everybody and costs for hospitals and costs for all of us. Um, it has people um, that there is a right to access affordable housing. We've lost thousands of units of affordable housing here in the city of Spokane, um, and it's time to turn that around. Um, especially as this economy is in such dire consequences, more and more people are losing their ability to pay um, for their homes, as we know. Um, and it also includes, and um, this gets to your introduction, the right of ecosystems. Um, the right of ecosystems have legally enforceable rights, such as the Spokane River, and people in the community have the ability to defend those rights. Um, and so this concept of rights for ecosystems um, has reached Spokane, and this is, I think it's worth mentioning that Spokane is, you know, it's not the most liberal place in the world. It's um, It's got a strong conservative base, 
Um, and it's not a place where many people, I think, would call themselves environmentalists or radicals or anything like that, um, but they're doing something really pioneering, um, and we'll see what happens on November 3rd. So are you seeing this occur in more places, even if they haven't gotten to the point where it's a coalition? Are you seeing more interest in this developing around the U.S.? We are. Um, we have now assisted about a dozen communities across the United States to put in place um, legally enforceable rights for ecosystems. Um, and much like Spokane, um, these are places that are uh, have a you know have a conservative bent to them. Um, places in rural America, small communities. Um, and people are beginning to recognize um, in their communities that they can't protect their communities from threats, things like mining um, or massive water withdrawals um, or factory farms, that the structure of law doesn't give these communities the legal authority to stop these things from coming in and causing all sorts of environmental problems, which we work with these communities and people and local elected officials, citizens groups, activists, um, to take a look at how does our structure of law work who does it seem to be working for, and why does it seem that our environmental laws don't seem to be protecting the environment? These are things that we work with communities to examine, um, and then we, if they're interested, we work with them to help them draft and adopt laws to actually put in place measures that will help them protect their community, and in this case, um, protect their local environment through legally enforceable ecosystem rights. Well, you ask an interesting question on why do our current environmental laws not protect the environment? And the Environmental Protection Agency was created um, many years ago to do just that. And yet um, there's challenges with that. Why is that? So it's it's interesting. Um, the Environmental Protection Agency is a, a regulatory agency, um, and much like other regulatory agencies, it's really interesting to look at why was it actually set up. Um, and we teach something called democracy schools. Uh, we've taught about 200 of them across the country with communities, with local elected officials, with lawyers, with community groups, in which we actually take a look at regulatory agencies like the EPA um, and why they were set up and what is their purpose. Um, and we look at what the very first regulatory agency was, which was set up at the end of the 1800s, um, the Interstate Commerce Commission, um, and that regulatory agency was set up at the request of railroad, railroad corporations. So it was set up at the request of industry to, quote-unquote, regulate industry. Um, but as the U.S. Attorney General said to the president of Burlington Railroad, Back in 1893, he said, by setting up this agency, you, in essence, take care of the popular clamor for regulation of this industry by putting in something that people think will be taking care of these, even though that supervision, in his own words, was entirely nominal. Um, so these regulatory agencies make us feel good because we think that we're accomplishing something when, in fact, they're not designed to do that. Um, and so if we take a look at our environmental laws, like the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, which the EPA is supposedly regulating for the purpose of protecting the environment, what these laws actually do, and you can pick up any newspaper and you generally see um, articles like this all over the place, um, in which you see articles about how corporations um, violated 
um, their permits, for example, permits that are handed out under the authority of the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act or other like um, environmental laws. These laws, what they do is they have government authorities like the EPA, like state um, departments of environmental protection or state departments of environmental services. These government agencies are actually handing out permits that are pollution permits that tell corporations how much they're allowed to pollute. Um, and when they violate those, which is very common, become standard operating procedure, the government agency and the corporation, they end up negotiating how much, how much benefit was there to us um, by actually violating these laws. Um, and so we have a system of environmental laws which actually allow pollution, allow habitat destruction, allow species extinction, and so on, and we see what the consequences are, because today our environment is far worse off than when the major environmental laws were adopted 30, 40 years ago. Um, and we see this through any number of measures, such as, you know, fisheries are collapsing around the world. Coral reefs are collapsing around the world. Global warming is far more accelerated than we ever anticipated. You know, rainforests, they deforestation of the rainforest is continuing unabated. Um, we have every single fish that was studied in 300 rivers and streams and lakes across this country was found to have mercury in them. Um, so there's any number of measures that we can look at that tell us our environmental laws simply aren't working. You know, it, it's fascinating to me. Um, I want to I want to take a Congress and send them to your democracy school. Um, <laughs> It's, it's fascinating to me. We have um, some elections going on in the state of California, and, you know, California has a huge unemployment rate, 12% for the last three years, uh, three months. And um, some of these politicians are running on the platform that um, we cannot be looking at the environment, we cannot be looking at solar energy. We've got to put jobs as a priority, and jobs first is their um, their lingo. And, you know, how can there be this thinking that, um, you know, to work is more important? I mean, how can you even have a priority? How can you prioritize something like that? I mean, what do we need to do to help people understand that, you know, that's not very effective? It's it's an age-old problem, right? Um, this idea that we have to pit the industry or business against the environment, which I think we're seeing more and more simply not the case. Um, and we have we work with communities that are facing um, a similar problem because you have a company like Nestle um, that wants to come in. Um, places like Cloud in California um, has been fighting Nestle, and Nestle recently decided it wasn't going to locate there, so it's going to Sacramento, I believe. Um, you have a number of communities in New England that we've worked with um, that are facing companies like Nestle, wanting to come in and take their water, and the company promises all sorts of jobs and so on and so forth. Um, but you, But these communities understand that if they don't have water, they don't have a community. And so it doesn't matter how many jobs you have if you don't actually have water to drink, water for all of the many reasons we need water. Um, and so the consequences are just far too dire. And to suggest that jobs are more important means that 
we, you know, we'll sacrifice our communities. And, and the communities that we're working with are saying, we're not going to do that. We can't do that. There are other ways that we can build jobs here that doesn't sacrifice our water, our most basic of things in this world, our water. Um, and there are communities across this country that are beginning to do things like put in place sustainable energy policies. We're working with a community in western Pennsylvania in the heart of coal country, which the community has not only adopted laws which ban corporations from coming in and mining out coal, again, the heart of coal country, they're also putting in sustainable energy measures, um, and their voters will have a chance to vote on that again in November at the general election because they understand they can't, have one without the other. You can't have jobs if you don't have an environment that's safe to live in. You can't have a clean environment. Um, you don't have to sacrifice a clean environment for jobs. You can have sustainable energy. You can have sustainable jobs. Um, and those that suggest otherwise, you know, you have your Glenn Becks and your others that, you know, they rant and rave about this. But it's about time that this debate was done. We've had this debate for 50-plus years in this country enough already. and We understand that we need to do some very, very different things if we're going to protect this planet and restore it. Um, and that means that we can get to create new jobs. Um, and that those two things go hand in hand. Um, and it's unfortunate that people seem to be unable to let go of that old argument that it's either jobs or it's the environment. Labor and environmentalists work hand-in-hand hand now. Um, communities that are in the heart of coal country, communities that are rural, communities that are conservative, understand that is not what they're facing. That is not the question that they're facing. And that's not what the debate is about. It needs to be move on from there. Um, and so I think that's what's happening. It's unfortunate that candidates in California feel that that age-old debate is going to get people to vote for them. Right, and that's what it's all about is, you know, give me an office and, you know, who, who cares really about um, the real issues. And you know, we're seeing that all over the U.S. And, and in some ways around the world. Well, we have more to talk about today on Leading Conversations with Mari Morgill. We come right back. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. We live in a time of economic uncertainty. Gas prices are up, health care costs are up, and sometimes the market is down. But studies have shown that by mastering your own energy, you can still live a life of prosperity. Listen to Master Your Energy, Master Your Life with your host, Siobhan Moran. Siobhan will show you how to overcome the negative energy of recessionary headlines and give you tools to deflect the harmful effects of subtle negative energy. Master Your Energy, Master Your Life. Friday mornings at 8 a.m. Pacific. 
Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern, on the 7th Wave Network. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment rising to levels not seen since the Great Depression. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time noon pacific time on the voice america business channel we're always talking business talk to an expert call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And we're back speaking with Maury Margill this morning, the Associate Director for the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund also known as CELDF. Um, so, Mari, tell us a little bit about this organization, CELDF. You know, what, what is its real purpose? Where did it start? Well, I can give you our mission statement, um, <laughs> which is that, you know, we're working with communities to help them assert their local self-governing authority um, so they can protect themselves and protect the environment, um, recognizing the rights of ecosystems. Our work began back in 1995 when we were organized, organized as a nonprofit organization. Um, and initially, we were set up to help communities protect themselves from threats to their local environment. Um, and we did that by helping them appeal permits um, to environmental regulatory agencies. We, you, Cheryl, you and I talked earlier about what do environmental regulatory agencies do. Right. In essence, what they do is they hand out permits. Corporations come to them, they submit a permit application to set up an incinerator, to build a big box store, um, to conduct coal mining, and the regulatory agency hands them out permits um, to conduct those activities. And the community and the environment's left out of the equation. Um, and right. so we initially started out by helping communities to appeal these permits, hoping to stop the projects from coming in. Right. Um, and it didn't matter how many of those permit appeals we won because, you know, a month or two later, the corporation could and would come back with a new and improved permit application, and then they would get the permission from the environmental regulatory agency to go ahead and conduct that coal mining. Um, and so the, what we found and what our communities that we worked with found is that they didn't have the ability to stop something from coming in um, because once a state or federal government allows an activity to take place, like coal mining, the communities have no legal authority to stop it. In right. addition, um, we also ran into the fact that corporations have something called corporate constitutional rights. Um, like they have First Amendment rights, like you and I have First Amendment rights, and that's why they get to lobby on Capitol Hill, for example. Um, they have Fifth Amendment rights to due process, Fourteenth Amendment rights to due process and equal protection, and they use these corporate constitutional rights against us. They use them against 
communities that want to stop them from coming in. They use them against states and communities that try to do things like pass laws to protect the public health or protect the environment. They become, they're very, very powerful um, because they enjoy these rights. Um, and so you have multiple forces working against a community that actually wants to protect itself. And having experienced this over the first couple of years that we were in organization, we realized that we weren't able to help these communities by working within the regulatory system. We weren't able to help them protect protect themselves or protect their local environment or their local economy or their local agriculture. And so we decided to start doing our work differently, understanding that under the existing structure of law and governance, we couldn't help these communities achieve the thing that they wanted to achieve, which was to protect their local environment or protect themselves from mining, whatever it might be. Which so when, where, sorry, where did this idea around that nature actually can have rights, where did the seed of this idea come from? You know, it goes back a long way. Um, There's a lot of writing and a lot of thinking, um, particularly over the last hundred years um, and, of course, more recently. Um, But it even goes back further than that because you had the abolitionists like Harriet Beecher Stowe um, and William Wilberforce and others who, once abolition occurred and so we ended slavery, started to turn their attention to nature and how nature was itself being oppressed, because it appeared to them that, you know, oppression of one, it doesn't stop with the oppression, ending the oppression of one, i.e. the slaves. Um, There are others being oppressed. Um, And in this case, nature. Um, You had, you know, Aldo Leopold and Schweitzer and Christopher Stone um, writing about this idea that we need to be doing more. Um, And Christopher Stone penned the... Um, law review article about should trees have standing, um, this idea that nature needs its own rights to defend. We often draw a comparison between how nature is treated under the law and how slaves and women were treated under the law. Nature's considered property under the law um, today in this country um, and most countries around the world, uh, much like slaves were property under the law and women were property under the law. And the comparison um, goes further because, for example, um, if a slave was beaten by someone other than their slave owner, monetary damages could get paid to the slave owner for damage to his quote-unquote property, meaning the slave. Yeah. Because the slave didn't have rights, there was no rights for the slave to try to defend. Um, Damages couldn't go to the slave um, because the slave was considered a thing. Um, It's much how we treat nature today. So under our environmental laws, which we've been talking about, when pollution to a river occurs, if any damages are awarded because of that pollution, those damages don't go to restore that river to clean it up. Damages go elsewhere, and they're not calculated for the purposes of cleaning up that river they're a negotiation, um, as we were talking about before, negotiation between a corporation who polluted and the state or federal regulatory authorities to determine what seems an appropriate amount. The river is left out of the equation, and that's how we treat nature today. And there's been a lot of thinking and a lot of writing and discussion about that that doesn't seem to be doing the job to protect the environment. Um, and this concept of rights for ecosystems or rights for nature has been um, gelling. And now about a dozen communities in this country have adopted laws recognizing legally enforceable ecosystem rights. The country of Ecuador um, that we worked with last year has actually adopted in their constitution rights for nature. 
Yeah. Talk about that. You were there. You were there when they were, you helped them write that, yeah? It was a really fascinating experience. Um, They elected delegates to the Constitutional Convention. Uh, We were invited um, down by a nonprofit organization that has offices in San Francisco and in Quito, the Pachamama Alliance. Um, They brought us in to talk with different delegates um, and different committees of delegates who were in the process of drafting the new Constitution. And we talked a lot about the work that we're doing in local communities, about this concept of ecosystem rights, um, and we were asked to draft some language, um, which we did based on these local laws that we've helped communities to develop here in the United States. The delegates then took that language that we submitted to them, and they expanded it, and they shaped it, um, and lengthened it, um, and put it into the new Constitution. And it's really um, a remarkable thing that's happened, and we we congratulate them on being real pioneers um, in changing how nature is protected. So, you know, for years I have heard about and I have worked with teachers who um, have earth-based beliefs and that land is sacred. And, you know, certainly Native Americans um, have dedicated specific sacred lands um, based on history and, and the way they are used and valued. And I know that there are um, people such as John P. Milton, who is um, working to, he, he has a sacred land trust, and he's working to um, determine how can you deed this kind of land trust to Mother Earth? and have human caretakers, you know, instead of the land being owned by the land trust, um, essentially by people, you know. Um, You know, what would your thinking about something like that be? I mean, you know, how how creative can we get here? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a wonderful question. And, and, you know, the way that the, the law works is it's always from the human perspective, um, so pollution of a river, as we talked about, damages are calculated based on how that impacted humans, not how it impacted the river. And the same goes for landscapes. Um, and so if the landscapes themselves don't have rights, if they're not um, given rights that are to be defended, and then human guardians, I guess the way to talk about it, um, and that we as humans then have the ability to represent those landscapes um, should something be proposed that would violate those rights. Right. You know, this the conversation in Ecuador, particularly with those delegates um, representing indigenous peoples in Ecuador, they very quickly um, understood what we were talking about, this concept of rights um, for ecosystems. And in fact, they said that they saw ecosystem rights as an expansion of their collective rights um, as indigenous peoples within Ecuador. Um, and so for them, it, was, it, it went hand in hand. There was no um, division in their minds between people and the environment, which seems to be what we have going on here in this country. Um, and so I think, that, I think that there's actually a large number of people who can, who can 
feel very um, close to this very quickly when we start talking about it because they understand that right now we don't have the abilities that we think that we should uh, or that we think that we do to protect these sacred places um, or or even our air or our water um, and that something fundamentally different needs to occur in order for us to be able to do this. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, I don't know if you're familiar with Peter Barnes and his book um, around Commonwealth. And, you know, his his premise is, you know, what if we um, charged corporations um, accordingly, you know, based on, um, you know, how well they treated the land. So they would get rights to do what they need to do based on how well they treated the land. And if they did not, um, they would be fined and there would be, um, you know, large consequences. And But, but it kind of, you know, shifts the, um, kind of turns our current thinking on its head very much like you are talking about. And... Um, you know, with with more and more of that creative thinking, you know, it seems like we should be able to move to this way of, you know, being in the world, managing, you know, our resources and um, and honoring our resources. You know, it, it, it's really fascinating that there is this sense by most of the societies or most of the um um, quote-unquote developed societies around the world that there is this sense, this infinite resources and those resources are only available for us to use up, you know, and so there, there's not even a question around this or any kind of conversation around you know, how should these resources be used and do we have the right to, quote, use them? Um, you know, there's just so much more to this story. And um, we have much more to talk about. So we're going to take a break. So we'll be right back. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. Money. We love it, we hate it, and everything in between. You can be the master of your life and your own economics. Join Professor Laurie Lamantia each week for the program, Making Peace with Money. Laurie will help you realize the power to create fulfillment in your life and shed new light on your money madness. You'll learn how to make peace with money and feel the joy and freedom renewed in your life. Making Peace with Money is broadcast live every Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. in a time of economic uncertainty. Gas prices are up. 
health care costs are up, and sometimes the market is down. But studies have shown that by mastering your own energy, you can still live a life of prosperity. Listen to Master Your Energy, Master Your Life with your host, Siobhan Moran. Siobhan will show you how to overcome the negative energy of recessionary headlines and give you tools to deflect the harmful effects of subtle negative energy. Master Your Energy, Master Your Life. Friday mornings at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on the 7th Wave Network. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And we're speaking with Mari Margill today. Mari, so let's talk a bit about how, just how did you get interested in this field? Now, I know you have a master's degree in, in, from Harvard University's um, School of Public Policy and Urban Planning, um, the School of Government, right, John F. Kennedy School of Government. Um, how did this, how were you inspired to move toward this kind of work? I, at the ripe age of about 25, decided that I needed a career change. Um, <laughs> I, had really. do- <laughs> I had been working, um, doing work in the environment, the education world. I had worked at the U.S. Department of Education and realized that the environment was the thing closest to my heart. Um, and so went to sc- back to school um, and came out and, and I worked for the Sierra Club um, for several years in Oregon and headed up their office there. Um, had done work in political campaigns, working for candidates, um, hoping that by electing good people, um, we could do more to protect the environment. I came um, a long way in my thinking about why we aren't able to protect the environment the way that we think we should or that our environmental laws should be. Um, and it took a lot of examination on my own part um, to, to get a real handle on what I saw as the problems um, with our system. And it really was a systems problem. Um, you mentioned I work for um, doing corporate campaigns, that is campaigns that pressure corporations um, to change how they do business. Corporations like Walmart, um, yeah. for example, um, to change how they do their work and their practices, which can have significant impacts. Um, good or bad, um, on the environment, on labor practices, and so on. Um, and through that work, became familiar um, with the organization I work for now, the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund, um, and really began to understand how our structure of law works, who it works for, the fact that corporations have this body of constitutional rights, what does that mean for our environment, um, and how is nature itself treated under the law, uh, and nature being 
this rightless thing um, as treated under the law without rights itself. So we're, as you know, environmentalists, we're not when we're trying to protect the environment, we're not actually defending the rights of the environment because the environment doesn't have any. Um, And so all of that, um, through my many policy and political and campaign experiences, brought me to a place where I said, this is really a systemic problem. Um, It's not just that we're not enforcing the Clean Air Act well enough. It's that the law itself is built on the wrong premise. Um, And so... That's how I came to do the work that I do today. Um, And I would say that the communities that we work with are really the pioneers, Um, much like uh, the early abolitionists and the early suffragists recognized that the the existing structure of law doesn't work. So, for example, the abolitionists faced the Constitution, which codified slavery, um, and they understood that they couldn't just, end slavery if the Constitution stayed as it was, because the Constitution legalized slavery. So they needed to change our fundamental structure of law. Nothing gets more fundamental than our Constitution. They needed to change that in order um, to have slaves not only freed, but recognized as having rights. Suffragists did the same thing. They had to change the Constitution in order to recognize rights for women under the law. And now we face a very similar situation in which, again, um, like slaves, like women, Nature is treated as property under the law without rights, and so we need to change our fundamental um, structure of law in order um, to be able to protect this thing that we call home. Right. Well, what do you think about the whole green revolution that is you know, so prominent these days and, and the, the focus on sustainability? I mean, you know, how is that, is that helpful? Is that real? You know, it seems like a lot of organizations are on the bandwagon, green and the environment, etc. And, um, you know, what's your take on all this? Well, look, I mean, it's good, right, to um, reduce our consumption. It's good to reduce our energy use and so on. That's not a question, but the problem um, is so much more than that. We can't buy ourselves out of our environmental crisis. Um, And we need to be doing something systemic um, because it's not enough for me to buy organic food. Right. We still have all of these toxins going into our foods, into our fertilizers, running off into the rivers. My consumption of organic food, it's good for me. It's good for the local farmer who grows it. It's good for the planet, but it's not nearly. It doesn't come close to scratching the surface of the real problem, which is, for in, the case, in this case, with respect to food, that we have, you know, a handful of corporations controlling not only our food production, but what goes into our food. Um, We have them controlling, you know, the kinds of pesticides um, that are being used to grow crops. Um, It's really systemic problems that we're facing, Um, Mm -hmm. and it's just not enough um, for us to be building green roofs. That's good, and I would never argue against it, but it doesn't go to the systemic problem. It's sort of like... You know, we say when we talk about our democracy schools, in which we hold um, in different communities that host them, we talk about things like, um, you know, the abolitionists, for example. Um, to go back to them, they didn't want to create a slave protection agency, like our environmental protection agency, because they knew it wasn't enough to try to regulate slavery better, how many whips, lashes a uh, slave could um, experience in a day or how many, you know, how much, you know, what kind of, how many hours they could work. You know, you didn't, couldn't, didn't want to regulate slavery better. 
Um, but that's how we treat nature today, much like that. So we need to be doing something systemically different um, in these communities that we're working with are recognizing that so long as we continue to treat nature as property or as this thing that we can exploit at our will, we're not going to be able to protect the environment the way that we need to. And and so, you know, it makes me curious, Mari, about your take on, you know, what skills and capacities do we as citizens and, and human beings of this planet really need to be developing as we move into this future? Because, you know, what, what we know and what we've been doing and the behaviors and skills that we have developed and these patterns we've developed have gotten us here and they're not going to get us there. So something has to change. And my sense is it's not simply the decision to be different. It's not simply deciding this is important. Now, is there, are there actual skills we should be teaching people? Are there actual um, ways of being in the world that we actually can teach people that will move us closer to this kind of future you're talking about? I think there are. Um, one of the things that we've talked with some educators about, um, we've had an opportunity to speak with law school classes, for example, college classes, um, is how we actually teach history, um, I think is a really important piece of our own understanding of how law works, how governance works, who it works for. We, If you look at our textbooks, we are all inculcated from essentially birth, as Howardson likes to say, um, that our founding fathers were these um, really remarkable people who wore democracy on their sleeve. But if you go ahead and look at, for example, the debate that occurred in the Constitutional Convention of Philadelphia when they were drafting the U.S. Constitution, we understand um, from James Madison's own notes that the discussion was not about democracy. In fact, they greatly feared democracy. Um, But we don't learn that in our history classes. We don't learn that in our history textbooks. We don't learn about um, that they were very much um, in favor of putting in place something much like a monarchy um, that we had just broken away from when we broke away from England through the American Revolution. These are things that we don't learn about in our classrooms, um, and that really needs to change. Um, And I think that's a big piece of this. But I also want to talk about some of these people in the communities um, where we work, these leaders um, who are leading their communities to do really extraordinary things and who recognize that the existing structure of law doesn't allow communities to protect themselves, to protect their local environment or local economy or local agriculture. These people are people. And they're living in places that they want to protect. And they don't have to be scientific experts or legal experts to understand that when a company comes in and sticks a giant straw into your aquifer, that you're not going to have water. Um, It doesn't take, you know, great scientific or legal expertise to understand these things. And so I don't think it requires um, some sort of special knowledge um, to understand that we need to be doing different things. Um, And the people that we work with in communities, they're just regular people working construction, you know, cutting hair, fixing cars, and teaching children, nursing, whatever it might be. I mean, these are people who are going about their everyday lives and suddenly see this major threat come in and that they understand that they need to stop it. Um, and so I don't think that we should 
be fearful of trying to make change because we don't think we're experts um, in things because it's really clear um, to these communities what needs to happen, um, and they're taking steps to do that, and they're not shying away because they're not experts in you know, corporate governance or experts in toxics or so on. Um, and so I think that we um, shouldn't fear what we consider our lack of expertise in something in order to try to make change. Well, and that brings up another question that I want to ask after the break, but it's about, you know, what's the risk to individuals and communities to stand up? We'll be right back. markets up or down or if you're looking to improve your portfolio our experts are ready to talk to you call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network in the spirit of have couch will travel dr carol lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Is there truly a lesson in every situation? Can you learn from another person's experiences or are lessons learned when they only happen to you? Dave Felzer, number one national and number one international best-selling author, challenges listeners to stand tall, to be accountable no matter what the setbacks, and to recommit to enhancing their lives as well as assisting others around them. Listen to The Dave Felzer Show every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Radio Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And welcome back. We're speaking with Maureen Margill, Associate Director of Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund. So, Mari, you were speaking before our break um, that, you know, we shouldn't be fearful of making change just because we're not scientific experts or, you know, we don't have a legal background. 
it brings up the question, you know, a lot of what people fear um, is some level of retribution um, or fear of loss of something. That's usually what keeps people from standing up. Um, what are the risks if an individual stands up or a community stands up and says to a multinational corporation um, or politicians, you know, we don't like this. We want things to be different. Are there risks there? It's a really interesting conversation that happens in communities when they're facing, for example, in western Pennsylvania, the long-wall coal mining machines, which come in and rip uh, miles and miles and miles of coal out of the ground. Um, And what happens as a result of that is that the land above is unsupported and it falls into the ground. Um, So you have farmland and um, falling into the ground and streets and buildings and homes and schools, and you have wells running dry and streams being dewatered. Communities, and then one local planning commissioner said to us um, that communities are being, quote, decimated um, by longwell coal mining, coal mining that is permitted, that is legally authorized by the state. And these communities are saying, we understand that if the long wall machines come into our community, our community will be decimated. And the question for them is, what are you going to do? Are you going to let it happen or are you not? With mm. communities in New England and in California and elsewhere facing Nestle and other corporations coming in to take their water, what is the option for them? And that's the community, I mean, that's the conversation we have with communities. What choice do you have? Um, Do you let this happen or don't you? And communities, when faced with that decision, it's really extraordinary what people will do um, and will fight for their rights. And so that's the conversation that we have, and communities make choices. Um, And some make choice to try to regulate mining better or regulate the water withdrawals by corporations better, and then they have the corporation come in and mine them or take their water, and you see the consequences. Um, And so that's that's what we have that kind of conversation with communities. And, you know, it's really extraordinary what happens um, when a movement for rights takes place in this country or anywhere. The people involved in those movements are called radical. They're considered treasonous, abolitionists, for example, like William Lloyd Garrison, one of the earliest abolitionists. He was run out on a rail. Um, you know, nooses were put around his head um, because he was advocating for the end of slavery and think about that. I mean, that feels like long ago, you know, 200 years ago. What does that have to do with today? But it has everything to do with today. Because when a movement begins, everything possible is done to shut that movement down. Just like right. the abolitionists, they tried to shut those abolitionists down because they were interfering with the way things worked. Um, suffragists were shut down. You had people like Susan B. Anthony who went ahead and would go and vote on Election Day knowing it was illegal. Um, knowing that she'd get arrested, and she did, but she had to do it um, to, in essence, lift the veil on how the structure of law worked and and who did it work for. She was considered treasonous. She was thrown in jail, but she had to do it in order to make the change. And you have communities now who understand and making this kind of change. Yes, they could face a lawsuit by a corporation because corporations seem to have more rights than we do in our own communities. Um, But that unless they begin to stand up, Nothing is going to change, and the mining will take place, their water will be taken, their wells will get contaminated, the factory farm will come to down and shut down all family farms. I mean, those, those are the choices, unfortunately, that we find ourselves in because our structure of law and our structure of governance allow it to be so. 
And the people in that Western Pennsylvania community um, are standing up, right? They are. They are. I mean, they adopted the first in the nation law, which banned corporations from coming in and mining. That's really an extraordinary thing to do. It's not easy to be first. I mean, we all, we all remember that even from, like, kindergarten. It's not easy to be the first person to volunteer to do something. Um, and these communities are first. They're first, and they're pioneers. Yeah, and they have a lot of courage. So do you have uh, hope that the U.S. Constitution will someday have an amendment for the rights of nature? You know, that's where this might be headed. I think it's a long, long time in coming. Um, Ecuador became the first country in the world to put it into their constitution, um, and we can hope um, that other countries will follow suit. In this country, it's beginning at the grassroots, um, which isn't that surprising, with communities across the country beginning to recognize that they need to, to do this in order to protect the environment. Mm. Well, we could talk so much more about this, Maureen. I know that this has stirred a lot of interest for a lot of people. And so how can they learn more about this, about this work and, and this issue and what you do? We encourage people um, to contact us. One way to get in touch with us is going to our website, and that's simply www.cel, as in Larry, D, F, as in Frank, celdf.org. There's a lot of information there. Um, you're also welcome to call us. Um, we take calls from people around the country and around the world all the time, um, particularly people in communities facing threats. And you can call us. Um, our main number is 717-709-0457. You can send an email um, to info at celdf.org. So there's a lot of different ways to get in touch with us and to learn about our work. Um, and I'd also uh, recommend that our executive director, um, has a new book out that he co-authored called Be the Change. And it was just released, um, I think, maybe this week, actually. It's called Be the Change. Um, you can find it um, online or at different booksellers. And it talks about the work in these communities and what these communities have done and what they're pioneering to make change. Mm, Be the Change. And his name is? It's Tom Lindsay. Tom Lindsay. Be the Change by Tom Lindsay. And I also want to mention that um, Mari, you are speaking um, next weekend at the Bioneers Conference in San Rafael, California. And Bioneers is a powerful organization and has developed over the years um, uh, so many of the great people who have made difference in, in the environment and, and in our world. And um, that promises to be a great, great gathering. So you have challenged us to... Um, really think differently. You have challenged us to answer a very simple question. I think it's a great way to frame this. You know, well, who will speak for the trees? Who will speak for nature? And if not us, then who will that be? And um, I so appreciate you being here today and taking the time to and it's really a luxury of time for us to be able to get into this in depth and, and not have it be a soundbite. <laughs> I really appreciate this a lot. And, Amari, good luck with this work, and we'll have to have you back again to uh, tell us how things are going. Thank you so much, Cheryl. So remember, everyone, think big, because the world just could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito.
Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G dot com. See you next week.